We used to be good friends, but that's all come to an end. Hello, my listeners. Welcome back to another episode of We Are the Best of Friends Until We Weren't. This is Gabby Scott, and I hope everyone is good, but I think it's really hard to feel good right now. We will be switching out the dynamic of this episode, given what's happening in our country. I'll explain that in a minute, but for some background, we all know what's going on right now um, with the murder, because that's what it is. We're not going to sugarcoat it. It's a murder of George Floyd recently. Not too long ago, we had Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, her birthday today. Happy birthday up in heaven. Basically, we are tired. And George Floyd was kind of the last straw. And obviously, these murders of unarmed Black men and women by white police officers have been going on for years. And too many lives have just been taken. And now there's rioting and protests and petitions and bail donations and so much just happening right now. I think it's just, it's so hard. I've recorded this over and over this intro because it's hard to put everything that's been happening into words and just a lot of emotions. So in light of all this, I felt it was important and honestly necessary to create a discussion group to discuss interracial friendships. As we know, those specific friendships have more of a unique dynamic. And then when things like this happen in our country, in the world, you know, how they affect those friendships. And then I've had, with everything right now, I've had white friends asking me, you know, what can I do to help and really be an ally? And I've had black friends who say they're really watching how their white friends are acting and moving right now. And then obviously in between, there's just a bunch of confusion and unexpressed emotions. And so that's kind of what this discussion group will help to talk about today. And I have a white male, a white female, a black male, and a black female. And I've chosen these people because I know they will be raw and real and just with their questions and commentary and just real perspectives and real life takeaways for now, but just for overall friendships. And I just really want this to be an example of the hard conversations that are necessary when you have a friendship with someone of a different race. So now allow everyone to introduce themselves and say a little bit about themselves to show the diversity we have in this group beyond race. So Erica, you want to start us off? Yeah. Hi, everyone. My name is Erica. Um, Gabby and I went to high school together, and I now live in Philadelphia, and I work as a corporate accountant. Awesome. Brady? Hey, everyone. Um, My name is Brady Baker. I met Gabby last year. Um, I was an athletic trainer with track at CU. Now I work at the University of Minnesota. Um, Currently live two and a half miles from where George Floyd was murdered. And just some demographics about me. Um, I'm a gay white male. So excited to be on this discussion board and kind of share and absorb all this culture in this discussion. Awesome. Thank you. Medford? Hi, Medford Moore. Um, Worked at the University of Colorado um, in the athletic department until uh, a little bit ago. Um, Assisted Gabby in understanding what diversity um, really means in many different ways, Um, having great dialogue with this young woman. 
and uh, excited to be here. I'm also a doctoral student at the University of Colorado Denver. And hi everyone, um, I'm Sydney, she, her pronouns, and I'm a white female working at University of San Diego. I'm also a master's student studying higher ed and theology. Very fun stuff. Awesome. Well, thank you all of you for being here today and just being part of what I think will be a really important discussion. Uh, with that said, let's get right into it. And just simply first, why don't you all just tell me how is everyone feeling with all of this right now? Like you said, Brady, you're kind of right in the mix of things and everyone has their own take on it. So you all know, one by one kind of say, just how are you feeling? This he was sweet and simple at first. Um, I'll start. Uh, I, I'm feeling, I'm feeling very overwhelmed, anxious, and uh, being in Minneapolis, it's sitting a lot different. Um, like it's everywhere I go, it's, it's everywhere. And um, to keep it short and sweet, definitely overwhelmed and don't just like, kind of at a loss right now. Mm -hmm. Of course. I'll hop in. Um, so I didn't mention this, I am a black female. <laughs> um, and I was a participant um, and some of the protests that have been happening around Philly, um, there's a standoff between a what was identified as a partially white supremacist group um, mm -hmm. in an area that I live in. So I have been overwhelmed. Um, there's helicopters flying around every day and we're on a 6 p.m. curfew. So I'm overwhelmed, stressed, and just um, I think I'm still processing what I'm truly feeling. Sydney? Um, I think for me, it's a lot of heaviness and a lot of um, kind of confronting who in my life isn't really getting it still. Um, and not to say that I'm even close to getting it, but there's definitely a lot of call to action on my part for calling people out, especially people in my family. Um, I'm in a full law enforcement family, mm -hmm. um, military as well. And so it's a very unique perspective to have my views and my perspective on what's going on and being so frustrated at law enforcement um, and having to talk to talk about that with my family in a way that is effective for them. Right. Definitely. We'll touch back on that, too. Medford. Yeah. So right now it, it's it's how can I say this? It's the norm uh, being a black man in, in America. This is it's almost like it's nothing new. Um, I've experienced riots. Um, I lived, you know, two blocks away from the start of the Rodney King ride um, in Los Angeles, California, in Florence and Norman. And so to me, an uproar and expression of emotions in the way of rioting and individuals keep using Martin Luther King's statement um, and that the uh, riots are, you know, composed by the individuals who are somewhat the voiceless or not are unheard. It's something that's, that's always been a part of my life being unheard in many ways. And so to me, it, it's sad, but it's almost like the norm, mm. right? It's like, I expect this. I expect for, uh, police brutality. I expect for certain things to happen in our in our country where black men are treated a certain way because that's my lived experience. And so to me, it's it's almost like it's the norm, which is terrible. Um, I fight every single day to try to make sure it's not the norm, but still working through it and still fighting each day. Mm 
Right. So obviously, Medford, I know this, you have Black kids, including a Black son. So how does that make you feel then moving forward that you've already, like you said, this has been the norm for you. And so how does that make you feel that's still the norm and possibly could be the norm even when your son grows up, your daughter as well? Well, well, it's, it's one of those things where you just have to always equip that individuals with these tactics on how to survive as a black man in America. Mm-hmm. And so if I teach my son exactly how to act and how to protect himself consistently, um, that brings me some sense of, of comfort. Mm-hmm. Am I completely comfortable when my son potentially walks out of my door every day? No, my son is only eight years old, but I still have these issues in my mind that he's going to face some racism or some problem. Mm -hmm. And he has already, you know, as an eight year old child has faced that in his lifespan. And so knowing that I have to take certain precautions myself, I have to make sure that my student, my son is actually equipped to deal with the, this environment that he's in Mm -hmm. um, as well as my daughter. It's not only my son, it's my daughter Mm -hmm. as well. It's, It's making sure that they have the actual, um, tools and the mindset and from where I'm from we call it the street smarts um, to protect themselves yeah. in every facet of their lives. Right it's a very unfortunate toolkit that you're having to provide your children but it's the reality. It's, it's reality consistently educate them on how to not only interact but how to avoid certain interactions. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So obviously I said, this is going to be about specifically dealing with interracial friendships dealing with this podcast and what's going on. So, so far, maybe right now, or just at all in your life, have any of you had to distance yourself from someone based on their views on race? And if you can tell a little bit about those stories, if any of you have any. I'll jump in on this one. I have, um, and I think it's hard because when they have an issue with your race in general, they always try to distance you from that in some way, shape, or form. Um, So they'll always say, well, Erica, you're different, or Erica, you're not really Black, which is a Mm -hmm. statement that I've heard far too many times in my life. Um, And, you know, it's, it's hard because you know that they care about you as a friend, but you have to make the decision of objectively what, how are they going to feel about my cousins? Um, how would they feel if they just saw my dad walking down the street, didn't know who he was? Would they cross the street? Would they smile at him? Um, and it's so, I think I've always sat in this kind of bubble that, or I've almost sat on like a pedestal that I put myself on, mm-hmm. um, that people view me differently. And it really was because I'm I've been told that I'm marketable, (laughs) which I think just means that I'm what they consider to be the ideal black person person. in the sense Mm -hmm. that, yeah, you know, I just, I tick off all the boxes that they want me to. Um, And I also have to hide a lot of who I am. So it was kind of like, it sucks to lose a friend, but at the end of the day, I can't bring them around my family. I love my family. Um, and I can't be this version of myself that connects to my blackness because they don't want that and they're uncomfortable with that. So it was hard, but it was also necessary. And it was a really good, like, growing opportunity. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Anyone else? I definitely have something to tie into that. Anyone else have a story? Um, one of my best friends is a gay black man 
And you know, like you always bring like you're one of your best friends. You always want to, they always want to come to your hometown. They want to see what you're about, where you grew up. And I'm from a very small rural Missouri town. And I've had to tell him, I'm like, I don't feel comfortable bringing you there. I don't want you to experience some sort of hate. I don't want you getting looks. Like, I don't feel comfortable within myself taking you to my hometown. Because I don't always feel comfortable in my hometown. So just to, like, distance myself from my hometown, um, sometimes I have to. It's awful because that's where my family is, and I love my family to death. Um, but sometimes going back home is hard because I know there is some people. there are some people in that hometown where I – have a really hard time seeing eye to eye with them mm-hmm. and just don't always feel comfortable bringing people that I care a lot about to that town. Cause I don't want them. I would feel awful if I brought them into that situation and they experienced something hateful like that. Right. And I think that's so important because I know some of the comments that I was receiving was talking about how, Oh, that's how I was raised. Doesn't cut it anymore. Like obviously you came from a background where people were racist and there was hate around you. So you could easily, been that person even into adulthood but you realize that you learn whichever way that that wasn't right and I think that's something that people just really need to learn is that that's not going to work anymore especially once you're out of your house you're in you know 18 plus whatever college whatever you're doing being how you're raised is not an excuse anymore you need to figure on yourself and you need to ask those questions and so Erica kind of talking into what you just said is I got another comment basically saying that White people think having black friends and family makes them immune to being racist or having racial (laughs) bias. And so we'll definitely talk about that. And I think what her and I were going back and forth about was first that racial bias was definitely built into the culture of this country. And I don't think people realize that racial bias can be as simple as, you know, people getting tense when a black man walks in the store or seeing a black woman in a high position in the corporate world and questioning how she made it there. So can y'all maybe talk about a little bit about your feelings on that or maybe examples of just racial bias and white people feeling that, Oh, I have a black friend. I can't be racist. Well, I'll start on this. And I think it's, what's important is to reflect just because, you know, you say you have a black friend. One, why are you counting? (laughs) Right. Why is there a count? Uh, Is there a quota on how many black friends you can have? Um, Is there a quota on how many, um, racial friends you can have in general. And I think it's important that we we, we get individuals to, to see, embrace it in a person's difference, but it's not to call out that difference to say, oh, you're my specialty. You're my special person. It's to embrace them for who they are and where they came from and the experiences that they've lived. Um, and for me, consistently, I live a cultural biased lifestyle um, consistent. When I walk in a store, there are, the people are looking at me. Mm-hmm. You know, they're looking at me to figure out, you know, am I one of the good guys or am I, you know, one of the bad guys, right? Mm-hmm. And so you get stereotyped and you have these unconscious biases that, that 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 are present consistently when you're having conversations or when you're entering into different spaces. Right. And okay. so some people even wonder if you belong in the space that you, you know, where you're pre- uh, presenting yourself. Um, and, and I'll say for the world, like, like in the world of like athletics, right? People would think that they, that you see more, more African-American individuals in that space, but many of those individuals don't feel like they belong in that space either. Mm-hmm. 
And so it's important to not only call out these things, but consistently have conversations on why are you immediately judging certain individuals um, for who they are as they enter into these spaces. Right. I'll have the, these conversations with executive or with the, um, uh, departmental leaders and individuals and they say oh this person did great it, it could be a young black man giving a speech oh that young black man did or, or that that young man did well mm-hmm. what are your expectations right what are your underlying expectations of human beings of people and especially black men and women and students of color and marginalized individuals what are your expectations of those individuals mm-hmm. if your immediate expectations that that they're less than that they they may stumble at some point in their in a speech or in an interaction, mm. you have an issue. So personally, it's all around um, my world and I call it out and see it and make sure that the individuals who are being oppressed or being marginalized are aware of that marginalization. Because mm. if we don't call it out and don't allow them to see that, then that's when it consistently happens and they, don't, they can't empower themselves to combat any marginalization. Yeah, I completely agree. I know my whole life I've always gone, wow, you're so well-spoken. And it's like, so that is that because you expected me to talk a certain way or that I didn't know how to have good verbiage or anything like that? So I definitely relate to that portion of it. Um, so we'll go into the next thing because I actually, what you just said, Memphis, about you know people just having certain expectations and calling things out so people are aware. And kind of the other side is I want to discuss the concept of being colorblind. So for some people don't have that means basically saying like, oh, I don't see color. Everyone's the same to me. That might connect to people believing like all lives matter. What kind of drawbacks do you all see in that when people try to have this idea of being colorblind? Oh, I hear this one a lot Um, from I used to say it and I see Mm -hmm. so many people in my community. um, I live live in a predominantly white community, go to school, grew up, everything. Um, The idea of being colorblind and the quote of like, red, blue, green, black, white, purple, I don't Mm -hmm. care what the fuck like, completely dismisses the experience of everyone around you. And saying that you don't care what color they are (laughs) dismisses their experience, dismisses their identity, the history of the U.S. It dismisses all of that. Um, and that's something that I, get, that I get so frustrated with because when people say they're colorblind, it's a way of saying that they're not racist. But looking at racism, especially when you're white, is not just looking at, oh, how does racism affect the black community? Mm-hmm. It, how does racism affect how I see everything? Mm-hmm. How does racism, racism affect how I live and the privilege that I have? And that's what makes me so frustrated about the idea of being colorblind is that dismisses that entire conversation, both for mm-hmm. yourself and with your with your community, with other folks, um, outside of your communities. It, oh gosh, I, I hear that so much, Gabs. And I've seen it a lot um, on family and friends Facebook pages in this last couple Yeah, absolutely. I feel like being colorblind almost takes like this giant erase marker or eraser and just like goes over everything. It's really like still, like, you know, when it's still dirty, like the old ones, that's how it basically feels like, yeah, you're trying to erase something and say you don't see it, but it's still there. And so the issue is still there. Anyone else want to speak on that? So being colorblind to me is, is as you were alluding to, uh, Sydney, it's this, you're erasing the systemic problems that are present within our country. And 
the systems that are in place, the white supremacist ideas and these ideologies that are present that affect marginalized and, and racialized individuals. And so saying that you're colorblind does not pay attention to or re tries to remove those systems that are in place to really keep these individuals down, um, black um, and, and marginalized uh, other individuals of color down in, in this world that we're a part of. And so individuals that consistently say that are, I believe are individuals who are afraid to speak up and stand up for you know, differences mm -hmm. and want to see everyone as the same as them. Um, rather than embracing the hard part of each individual's difference. And I think it's important that we, we call that out. We call an individual out who talks about um, seeing things colorblind. Um, because in today's world, there are differences amongst us all and we have to embrace those, those each individual differences and make sure that the system itself that we are part of are being broken down to also embrace those differences of each individual. Absolutely. Awesome. So I think another thing that's important too is realizing privilege is one of the biggest steps to understanding how to support those who don't have it. So Sydney and Brady, I am going to make this question more directed towards you two. Um, have you acknowledged your white privilege and when and what caused you to kind of recognize this privilege? I'll go ahead and start. Um, I remember hearing the, the phrase white privilege for the first time when I was an undergrad and definitely not fully understanding it, but knowing it, like once I heard it and thought about it, I was like, this is for sure a prevalent part of my life. I feel okay when I go into job interviews because I'm a white male. Mm -hmm. When it became very palatable to me was when I came out as gay, um, which was only two years ago. But that put me, I was, I'm a part of the LGBT community. Um, and so I do have to thank when I'm going to a straight bar, what town I'm going to, do I feel safe? What am I going to wear? But when it comes down to it, if I don't want people to know I'm gay, I can lower my voice. I can hide aspects of my life where at the end of the day, I'm a white male. Mm -hmm. This society was built for white men to succeed. Mm -hmm. So I am lucky in the fact that like, I can hide behind my privilege. And I found myself doing that when I was in the closet because I was so scared to live my truth. But when I came out, I was like, oh my God, I've been hiding behind my privilege and just being gay male, it's, I mean, a white male and just skating by and understanding that. And really like when I started to live my truth, when I started to be who I am, when I started like going to gay bars or when I started to wear clothes I liked wearing and like straight people may classify him as gay and I was getting side eyes and I was getting looks. I really started feeling, I was like, I can't express it enough that it's so prevalent. And especially being a white male, there's so much white privilege thrown my way and I get it so often. Thank you. Uh, I think for me, acknowledged it definitely, but I don't think I'll ever understand the depth of my privilege, especially because I'm very tall. Like I have so many privileges that are, I'm straight, I'm tall, I, my family's in law enforcement, I'm white, I'm middle class. There's so many privileges that are present that I will never understand the depth of them. Um, but when I started noticing it was my freshman year, I had a roommate who was black and she, after her first day of classes, came home and was like, 
wow, like I had a black professor today. And I was like, oh, okay. And I was like, okay, like, that's cool. She's like, I've never had a black professor in my entire life. And I'm like, really? She's like, have you ever had a black professor? I'm like, I don't know. Maybe I have, but I've never thought about it mm-hmm. because every single person that I grew up with that was in any sort of leadership role, whether it's a teacher, administrator, et cetera, that I could remember has been my same skin color. So it hasn't been something that I've ever had to think about. Mm-hmm. Um, and so naturally I feel that I see people that are in those positions. I feel that I can achieve that as well. Um, and there's a big discrepancy in higher ed specifically. And I know other folks in here are also in higher ed and you may be able to speak to that as well of people of color, black people not being in leadership positions and the desire for diversity and inclusion. But really what, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that's a big frustration for me is not really understanding what that will look like, um, in the future and the big hope for actual diversity and inclusion to come through, but still not personally being able to understand the depth of what that means. Um, because I've never seen it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so how do you two then use that white privilege now to help other people? So, um, Honestly, I don't know if I've used my white privilege to help people enough. Mm. And being in Minneapolis right now, hearing, going down to the protests and just listening has been very powerful and has amplified what I need to do even more. Um, And white people in general. Being a part of this society where racism is still so prevalent, white people can no longer say, I'm not racist, I'm with you. White people have to stand up and help other white people understand, because sadly that's what it's going to take. Help them understand what, how to empathize and how to see this side of the story, this narrative that's being told that they don't necessarily understand. Um, so to answer your question, I need to do a much better job, haven't done it enough, and I got to step up. I appreciate that. I love that a lot, the honesty. Cindy, go ahead. Yeah, I definitely echo the need to do more. Um, I feel like if you're not saying you need to do more, you're lying to yourself if you're white. Mm-hmm. Um, I also, kind of what I'm trying to do is, I'm not asking black people what I should do anymore, because it's not your job to tell me what I should be doing. It's my job mm-hmm. to do myself. Um, and to reach out to other people who have a deeper understanding and have done more education and done more research than I have, asking them questions who are white. Um, and so doing that is something that I've been definitely trying to implement and also calling people out and keeping them accountable. Um, and my posts are sometimes a little feisty on social media <laughs> in that I'm like, if you're posting this black square, get ready for me to check in with you in two weeks. Like, let's right. keep it accountable. It's not just, oh, I feel good. I posted a Black Lives Matter thing. No. That's not what it's about. Um, and so just keeping my white friends accountable and figuring out what I can do on my own and with other folks to not burden black people mm-hmm. to teach me what's going on. And that's great. Cause that's definitely one of the comments I had written down just for my own personal opinion is like, I think that's where some, you know, black people in the black community are just kind of tired of having to constantly say over and over again, 
how to do better because obviously yes it's important to educate but at this point a lot has been said we have social media where people have put that out there and we told our white friends or other people where there's other people to ask rather than it being our job constantly to tell you all how to do better and so that goes into probably my favorite question I actually got from a lot of white people who said where do you draw the line between a real ally and white savior complex and any of you can answer that I know for me my answer to that excuse me was is there an underlying benefit you know are you doing it for social media to build your resume to impress your friends is there kind of like an enlightened self-interest thing and to me a real ally stands up when it's uncomfortable or even when it could offend your peers or your family not basically half the time or pick and choose when it's support so any of you can speak on that personally i think it's being authentic um, consistently being authentic, speaking up when a person of color is not there, when you're with your family, when you're at the, the dinner table, when the political discussions get, get heated and, and hard, you speak up and, and voice your opinion and consistently voice your opinion from an authentic framework, not just going on social media. Because going on social media, is, is, is most people are going to blow that off. I want you to be in real living color engaging in this struggle and, and defending and discussing these tough situations that black people and brown people find themselves in. And that consistency will hopefully bring some, some light to your family, to your constituents, the individuals that you, you uh, participate with in your lifestyle. Um, but it's important, be authentic. Don't be half-assed in the, in the situation. Be straightforward and give your perspective in the way that is from you, not from someone else, not from a book, come from your heart and what you believe in. Mm -hmm. And Sydney, I definitely want to hear, thank you, my friend. Sydney, I definitely want to hear your take on it because I've seen you post in the past about white savior complex. So if you want to touch on that, I know that's something you're definitely passionate about. Yeah, um, I definitely post on white savior complex a lot with regards to mission trips. Um, mm -hmm. That's, I mean, it's not really relevant, so I won't go too deep into it. Um, but just the idea of going in and doing something to make yourself feel better, to elevate your own status, um, that's not really effective for the community that you're helping or the community that you're around. Um, an example would be going to South Africa and painting a fence and posting pictures with a bunch of little black children saying, so grateful, so blessed to have this opportunity when you just paid $8,000 to go on this trip. Right. Um, so just the idea of doing something that's intentional and effective rather than just to boost your own status. Mm -hmm. I agree. And I think Sydney, um, especially around service trips. So the university that I went to um, had a very strong focus on service trips. And a lot of them were to, um, one was to Tanzania. One was, uh, there's a couple that were in um, South American countries. Um, but all in all, it was countries that just didn't have, they were poorer countries. And I'm sitting here thinking, I love that you went to the Dominican Republic, and I love that you learned something from it, but what did you do? Um, and I think that's really what I see with the white savior complex, is it's, you do something and, you know, there's really no intention behind it except for yourself um, and building up how you feel about yourself in the sense that, oh, well, you know, I defended Erica in an argument, so 
she owes me something or I did mm. something right by her. And in reality, I'm a grown woman. I can defend right. myself. Um, and realizing we there's a difference between serving a cause and acting like you are the great miser who is giving to the lesser. I mean, I think a lot of people are like, oh, well, I have all this privilege. And by me posting this thing on Facebook, look at, look at what I'm doing for the Black community. You are doing nothing. You're do mm-hmm. doing nothing more than the Black community has done for itself because we've been our own proponents. We've been standing up for ourselves. We've been on the front lines for ourselves since, what, we're on 400 plus years now? Right. So mm-hmm. I think it's realizing, you know, we're not defenseless we are marginalized and we get beat, beat down, but we've come up through a lot. hundreds of thousands of times. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we'll continue to do so. Love that. So in 1968, Ivan Anichi wrote a speech and he gave this speech and it's called To Hell With Good Intentions. And so this speech speaks from the perspective of individuals going to foreign lands or going to environments to where you feel like you are um, saving these individuals or assisting these individuals in upliving their lives, right? And, and, and making sure that they, are, 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 they have a better life to live. And in my perspective, it's one of those things, and within this speech, he talked about this, this savior mentality from an American lens, from a white lens to individuals in South America. And so, and individuals in Africa as well. And what he talked about was this idea that individuals who are, who are coming to these lands with this mentality that your lifestyle is the correct way and the right way to live is mm-hmm. completely against what the individuals need. And to me, that's kind of the same mentality when we think about black people in America. Black people in America want to have a wonderful job, want to be able to take care of their kids, want to be able to take care of themselves and do well but they don't necessarily want to have this pressure of saying, you have to be like me to succeed. I don't have to be like a white person. I have to be like myself, mm-hmm. a knowledgeable black man who wants to succeed and do great things in life. And I think that's where we, we get to this point to where individuals don't necessarily, um, white people, and many white people look at the opportunity to potentially help a black person as hey, this is an opportunity to pat myself on the back, instead of seeing it as true service to humanity mm-hmm. and supporting individuals. And so if you haven't ever read this speech, 1968, Ivan Anichi, uh, to hell with good intentions, check it out. I'm going to have to check that out myself. I like that. Thank you. And I think one of the things I definitely want to harp on just because it happens all the time, it's like, and Medford, you touched on it, it's like checking your white friends when we're not around. It's so important. Don't have me at the party and you're having my back and protecting me and then I leave and then you're still engaging in racist behavior. And even when we are around, it's tiring having to constantly correct people. Like even listening to music, why am I having to check you because you're saying the N-word in a song? Like as white people, you all have that power too to step up and check your own white friends or even to someone, someone you don't even know. That doesn't always have to be our responsibility, but also just keep it 100 all the time, like both in our faces and behind our back. Um, and another comment from a white girl was, 
right now she feels like she's kind of battling between wanting to check in on her black friends but also not wanting to force anyone to think or talk about racism more than they already are having to and kind of trying having to relive that trauma so with that needing advice but also in general how do you as a white person ask the tough questions about race and your interracial friendships and like obviously Cindy and Brady you can talk on that but I think also for Medford and Erica if you have suggestions on what is the right way to ask those tough tough race questions I think it comes down to um a how close are you with that person do you feel that person and you have a strong enough bond that you're ready to have that conversation if right now you're checking in with your black friends and you ask how are you and if they give you something heavy or they're ready to have a heavy conversation, you need to be ready to understand it and you need to be ready to absorb it and help them through it. So just make sure there's someone that you, um, they trust you and there's someone that you know you will always have good intentions with um, when you do ask those tough questions. When I've called my friends during this, um, I've always prefaced, let me know how I can be here for you if you do not want to talk to me about it right now, if you are completely overwhelmed or I'm the last person you want to talk to, I will not feel any type of way. Mm -hmm. Like whenever you need me, I'm here. And that's how like, I'm letting you know. And for me, so I am unfortunately at a big transition point in my life in the sense that I literally just purchased a home and I'm also, you know, I'm in this house alone and all this is happening. There's, explosions, fires, and people are just saying, well, how are you doing? And it's, I want to yell at them so badly, but I know it's coming from a good place, but you need to ask a realer question. Because if I say bad, then you're just going to say what's wrong. But how do I explain to you something that I feel to the deepest part of my soul? Like, it's Mm -hmm. not, you know, they treat it like, this guy that I was talking to ghosted me or, you know, I did bad on an exam and this is something deeper. And I think people need to realize that you have to, if you're comfortable and if someone's truly your friend, then you should be comfortable. Um, push to ask the bigger question, you know, say even something that creates action, I think is always better. Mm -hmm. Um, but just to say, how are you feeling? I can't, you know, describe, 24 almost 25 years of the same old same old because this isn't new to me right we've you know George Floyd is not the first he will definitely not be the last and I Mm -hmm. hate to say that Mm -hmm. but this isn't some new experience for us so you need to come with a question of something a little bit deeper you could even say you know with all that's happening in this climate is there anything that I can do as a friend to be an ally because mm-hmm. I've answered for that. Um, but just to say, Hey, how are you? It's just like, it almost feels like you're just, you know, it's a little bit of lip service. It's not coming from a place of genuine care or knowledge. Yeah, I definitely agree. Cause I just, I've gone a few of those as well. And it's like, how am I? I don't, I can't even put it into words. Like you want me really to write you a novel? Cause that's basically what I could do for you now. Like you said, just feel the very, surface level question for a very non-surface level situation and emotions right now so medford basically i would say that one don't think you have to have answers 
because you won't have the answers. You know, we've, this country has been here for a long time. We've been working through racism in certain situations for a long time. It's more of, in, in many cases, it'd be nice if people just listen and then ask follow-up questions to get a little deeper and have that, that, that's, that dialogue consistently. Mm-hmm. And the dialogue shouldn't be that just at one time. Mm-hmm. It should be, if it's truly a friend, it should be a consistent conversation about what's going on in my life. It's not just, hey, how are you doing today? It's how are you doing today, tomorrow, and the next day, mm-hmm. and beyond. Because that's what it's really going to take to get individuals into a space to where they feel like they can truly express themselves to the ability to where you can potentially assist with an answer. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's, that's how I view it. Um, but don't just start and think you, you need to have an answer right away because more than likely you won't have the answer. It's about having that ear and having given individuals an opportunity to speak where they're coming from and just listening, mm-hmm. listening. Cause then more than likely that individual will come to you with a question and then you can give an answer that might be helpful to them. Yeah, and I agree. And I think that's kind of what some people or some white people are treating this as is like a checkbox. Like, okay, I checked on this friend. I checked on that friend. I checked on this other friend. And it's like, that that doesn't solve anything. I'm glad that made you feel good. But like you said, actual dialogue that means something that you're actually listening to me. We're having a genuine conversation and not just this one time. And Cindy, you said it too, a check-in in two weeks. Are you all still checking on your friends? Are you all still having this conversations? Or was this just, like I said, a check to the box to say, okay, social media told me to check on my friends and I did, I'm good. Something deeper than that. And with that, remember what you said and what we talked about, so should black people start the conversation about race and their interracial friendships and how can they start this conversation in, your, in y'all's opinions? The conversation should have already been started at the beginning. <laughs> That's really being a friend if you're embracing who I am wholeheartedly is that you're embracing my blackness. Mm -hmm. You're embracing my maleness. You're embracing all of who I am as an individual. And you're taking me as your friend in that space. When we walk into a store, you're walking in with the black person. I'm walking in with the white person or whatever it is, but we're walking into this together and we're going to be treated and and respected together. And so I think that's the conversation that, that should be, had from the very start. If, if we have this colorblindness mentality that we talked about earlier um, in our relationships, then to me, that's not authentic. And it's not an authentic relationship because you haven't really gotten to know that individual and the things, the social things and the intimate things that affect that individual's well-being and holistic you know, development. Mm-hmm. I agree. And you saying if black people should start the conversation, I don't think that's true at all. I love what you said, Medford, like that conversation should have been had a little bit ago. Um, But I definitely see myself as having friendships that I really failed at having that conversation. Like Gabs, I don't know if we talked about race once in high school, but now every time we see each other, that's like the topic of conversation. Um, And that shows the depth of the relationship when you're actually actually able to talk about the real experiences that are being had in both of our lives and how those connect and how those disconnect. 
Um, and so I don't think it's black people that need to have the conversation. I think it's all of us that need to have the conversation. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it's a bigger call for white people to recognize that there's a difference in experience um, and educate themselves individually and be able to have that conversation well um, and have that as a continual conversation, not just something like, hey, you're black, I'm white. Okay, a little different. Right. No, like it is a continual conversation as things come up, as different experiences are had. Um, and it'll happen throughout a friendship. And I think it really does deepen the relationship that you have with that person and also deepen your awareness of yourself. Mm -hmm. I agree. I absolutely agree. And like you said, it's just something that has to be stated. But I also think it shows the maturity of a friendship, including our own between us two is like, we didn't talk about that much in high school, because it's easy to just be in the moment and we love each other. And even this might be some colorblindness on my side in the sense of growing up at a predominantly white area it's like this is my my best friend this is someone I'm close to it's cool and now that we've both matured we realize you know you have to have this conversation so I think that's for other people listening is like if you haven't it's not too late you can still have those conversations don't think because you have it now you know your friendship isn't real or it can't be deeper and even better than it is now oh uh, just a quick thing this will probably be the point that I you know reference you know this timestamp will be the one or this question that I, it's going to be the one that I reference to all my friends when I say, hey, come listen to this. Um, because I will, I don't think I've ever said this out loud, but I've had friends who rejected the race conversation where I said, you know, isn't it crazy how I grew up, you know, in theory in a better, you know, both parents, upper middle class home, went to a great high school, got a great education, but if we're walking on the street, like you have the advantage over me. Mm -hmm. um, and this acquaintance, I won't even call them a friend anymore, just shut it down. Um, and so I think if you have a friend where you're like, I don't think that I can have this conversation because I think they would shut it down or they would get defensive. I mean, I encourage you to go forward and have that conversation. But if you don't have, if you don't think that that's gonna be good for your mental health or who, how you sit as a person, then that person doesn't need to be in your life because mm -hmm. even though they're not overtly racist, they're uncomfortable with your race. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's racism. That's just as much racism as saying the N-word to someone on the street. Yeah. I love that. And I love that point. Medford, you want to say something? What I was going to say was, um, hmm, thinking about friends and not not having a space to where you're comfortable to have the race conversation is something that it's, it's almost like you're hiding and you're fearful of potential you know conflicts that you might have in your own individual values um, and I think it's important that we we have those conversations consistently um, with each other in in multiracial same race conversations because it goes both ways. It doesn't matter if we have different races and we're friends. If, if I'm white and you're white and we have different opinions about black people, then that should be stated as well. We should have, we should work through those conversations as well. So I think it's important to go just beyond black, white relationships, brown, white relationships, and make sure that we're consistently having those conversations with all friendships. We really talk about our values and where we're coming from and how we're respecting other human beings in this world. Awesome. Thank you. And Erica, I know you said that's a point that that was kind of your goal to say on here and for people to listen to when you tell uh, your friends to go listen. 
what are there any points or specific questions that you all just like really wanted to say when you were told about this podcast or anything that I want to kind of give you all the floor to, to maybe share things that either you want to ask or you want to say for any listeners to hear that you think would be valuable? I think the question um, that I have for most of my white friends is, what is your fear in having those conversations? Like, what to you is the worst case scenario um, that makes you so afraid? Um, And why is it that, you know, why is it that you think that it'll be a detriment to your friendship or it'll change your friendship in a negative way if you do have that conversation about race or you ask them a question, um, your friends of color or even your LGBTQ friends about their experiences? Um, So something I just kind of want to echo, going down to the protest, listening to these Black people speak and just in the air feeling the palpable pain and anger. And it's been really powerful for me to learn. I've been just trying to go down and absorb, learn, understand. Um, And something really powerful that happened while I was down there, um, this one white girl was holding a Black Lives Matter sign. And um, they built a stage in a Target parking lot. And he like, he was like, you come up here. And she was obviously scared to death. Like, being a white person in this massive crowd mm-hmm. she's like whoa was not expecting this um but he's like don't worry you don't have to say anything right now this is what we need from you let us do the talking we don't need you spray painting blm on businesses um we need you here beside us uplifting our voices and right now let us do the talking and let us be heard and i think white people really need to understand that message of if you're feeling overwhelmed like we've said earlier, uh, seek out education, listen, and just be a part of the conversation and ask those hard questions that you may have been afraid to ask before because you don't fully understand. And the only way you're going to understand is to initiate those conversations. Awesome. Thank you. And that kind of goes into basically to wrap it up um, to for the last question for each of you. And you kind of gave that. You can add to this too if you want is what's one piece of advice you have for people to kind of foster true understanding, love, and support in their interracial friendships? I'll start and say, first and foremost, remain curious. You know, have that curiosity to get to know the individuals you're friending consistently, deeply into their lives. Because if you're friending that individual, you're expecting kind of the same mutual you know, care and comfort from that person. And so if we're thinking from a a, a black person, there's a different type of care and comfort that they may need. And so consistently ask questions to those individuals um, and remain curious about other things that might be going on, not only just in your immediate friendship, but culturally. Um, Educate yourself um, consistently, ask, questions over and over and over again if you do not understand you know ask a different person Um, don't ask the same person because they might get tired of it but you know ask a different person and remain you know curious about everything that's going on around you you know human beings are very complex we don't stay the same people talk about this idea of cultural competence you don't you're never competent about someone's race or someone's experience So you have to continue to work through, you know, 
more and more work through educating yourself over your lifespan. Remain committed to the cause and recognize your biases and be truthful about your biases and try to, and really work, don't try, work through them. Ask those questions while you're working through them and be curious through that process. Something else that has really helped me is believing your black friends when they tell you about their experience. If someone tells you something that's happened to them or something that they've experienced, um, don't say, but what about, believe them um, and take that to heart as their truth and dissect, how does that make you feel? Why does it make you feel uncomfortable if it does? Um, and do that work on your own. Um, and then just really, diving into being really uncomfortable sometimes and knowing that you're going to have to face the privilege that you live with every single day and how that has impacted the black community negatively for years and years and years and how you're a part of that. Um, it's something heavy, but not even close to as heavy as the burden that our system has put on the black community. I agree. Are there any last words? I know piece of advice. Um, for me, it's just, you know, like Medford said, um, be curious, you know, kind of almost treat it like you would treat a class, except this class is a lot more important and um, you'll get quizzed every single day of your life. And when you ask questions, realize that there are questions that you should ask that start a conversation. And then there are questions that you can literally type in three words on Google and figure out the answer. Like someone asked me like, do black people use sunscreen? Yes, like we, we have skin. Right. <laughs> um, and that's a question you can literally Google. Also, you don't need to know that question. You don't need to know the answer. Um, so, you know, it's fine if you find a resource online and it brings up questions for you. If you say, hey, I read this thing by this black author or, um, you know, someone who has the credentials behind it, um, but I have these questions about it, that sparks a very enriching and powerful conversation. But to go to your black friends and just, you know, use them as, you know, your personal Google, that's not fair to us. We are just human. We don't know everything and we all experience different things. And it's not fair to you because you only get an understanding from um, that one person's person. perspective. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I know we could probably sit here and talk for hours about all of this. You are literally some of my favorite people in my network and everything. And I'm really excited for all the listeners to have this as a tool, even something they can go back to if they have questions. And I really hope they literally have parts that they save and bookmark and everything and jot down to listen to for both sides um, to finally see an example of an honest and real conversation of admitting mistakes that have, been, that have been made, admitting things that we don't know and sharing our experiences. So I hope you all have had your questions answered, your eyes open and just have tools now to have real and healthy friendships between different races. And I want to thank you all again for coming on here and just sharing your experiences and your takes on this. And you all are absolutely amazing. And if you all are interested in having further conversation, questions, dialogue, as usual, you can reach out to me at gabscott13 on Instagram. I'll get back to you. Love to have further conversation if any of you are interested in that. Uh, one last thing before we sign off of here, you all probably noticed a new intro and outro that we did for business reasons. And I just want to quickly give credit where credit is due. The lyrics are done 
Same person, my best friend Amaka, also known as Miss Arlene T on Instagram. The vocals are by another and best friend, Bria St. Julian, and the beat is by G6. And also the graphic is by a young woman named Kaylin Harbison, and she's also known as Smiley, that's me on Instagram. So beautiful people in my corner, uh, very artistic and creative people, and I thank you all for that as well. So thank you all once again for listening and tuning in. I hope you got amazing things out of this, and just remember, do your part, be the change, and go out and be great. Thank you all again. This is Gabby Scott. See you later. In the beginning, we were inseparable to become one. Now a season's over, absence is your trophy.